Well, welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Logically Faithful. I am Calhoun Spice, where we are engaging culture redemptively and addressing suffering productively. Today, I have a very special guest with me today, Dr. Baggett. Dr. David Baggett is with me. I'm pleased to have him. He was, uh, his work has been pivotal in my understanding of morality and his work with Oxford University Press in that area. Welcome, Doctor. Thank you very much. Great to be here. You are the co-author and author of multiple books, specifically Good God, The Theistic Foundations of Morality. This one won the 2012 Apologetic Book Award. That's, that's great. Uh, I love that. Uh, apologetics has been always my, um, my forte trying to bring it more grounded in, in that area. Uh, so you have been writing critiques of naturalistic ethics, and I want to discuss some of these with you and how that's a foundation for your books, specifically how um, you can bring C.S. Lewis into there and some of his articulation of that and, and your thought process on it. So tell us, um, what is it that got you started in this arena of questioning the moral foundations of society and philosophy in general? So tell us about you. Give us a little bit of background. Yeah, I think that what got me into this topic originally was when I encountered the Euthyphro Dilemma in college. Mm. And uh, I was a philosophy major as an undergrad and uh, found the Euthyphro Dilemma to be particularly interesting. And I had a sense that there was a good answer to it, though I wasn't entirely sure what what it was. And you remember the Euthyphro Dilemma from an early Socratic dialogue. So do the gods love something because it's holy or is something holy because the gods love it and to put it in monotheistic terms okay. and, and um, using the notion of divine commands, does God command something say because it's moral or something moral because God commands it, something like that. So I was drawn to that and thought, well, that's something I'd really like to think about some more. Then I went off after college to seminary, and the first guy that I took at Asbury Seminary as my professor was Jerry Walls. Yeah. And so I had a chance in that class to, to write some more on the Euthyphro Dilemma. And then eventually, when I worked on my PhD, I knew from day one that the topic that I wanted to write on was the Euthyphro Dilemma. So I ended up writing my dissertation on that. And then Good God, uh, our book Good God that Jerry and I did, right. uh, is just a sort of a later version of that, of that dissertation work. And that's, I think, what, what got it all started. Okay. Do you mind, for those who never heard of the Euthyphro Dilemma, how would that in a uh, theistic framework, specifically today, be a challenge for people? Like, try to articulate the... Um, yeah. For someone who never heard it, and how would that apply? Like you know, based on Socrates, those multiple gods. <clears throat> right. Yeah. So in, in in the contemporary context, it's usually put in monotheistic terms, and so is something moral because God commands it, or does or or does God command something because it's moral? Two options here, right? And so if you embrace the horn of the dilemma according to which something is moral because God commands it, that tends to raise the specter of arbitrariness, right? Oh, so God could just say anything at all is moral, right? right. And, and this is a, a real and practical concern for many because uh, they probably harbor doubts about God's goodness. And uh, they think, boy, if uh, the very enterprise of morality itself is entirely dependent upon the caprice of a potentially bad God, then morality itself has no real found, foundation, 
And so um, it, it's practically relevant in, in the sense that uh, if God is thought to be the f- very foundation of reality, and, and that includes morality, then you have this huge arbitrariness mm. objection that arises. And if you want to say, no, there are some things that are just right and wrong or good and bad and su- such and not subject to divine caprice, then you might think you have good reason not to found morality on, on God. Uh, the other horn of the dilemma would say, well, God commands something because it's moral. And that might be the option that many people like to gravitate to, thinking it's theoretically advantageous. But of course, theologically, then, there's kind of a problem that arises because it makes it seem as if morality is bigger than God and God himself is subject to it and that whole thing. And that sort of flies in the face of this notion that God is at the foundation of all of reality. So either way you go, either God is sort of metaphysically uh, irrelevant to morality, and that seems problematic theologically, or morality is a function of divine command and potential caprice, and, and again, that makes morality seem altogether arbitrary. You see? So then the person has to choose either morality is arbitrary, God can make good, evil, and evil good, or there's this higher standard, some kind of force, some kind of system that's greater than even God that's in charge of the universe that God has to subject himself to. Um, so uh, the standard format that you have presented is to break the dilemma it's not an either or. <laughs> yeah, although although it's really quite fun to think about the dilemma, isn't it? Um, so I think God, let's let's go ahead and get into some of that because that's the foundation for some of your work and some of the struggle. I think sitting in the struggle is helpful. Yes. So let, let give us an example. You've given multiple ones in your book. Maybe even if you use Abraham as an example of Isaac, uh, God being. So commanding something that seems to be morally uh, malevolent to the sacrifice of his very son, his only son. Yeah. If it's coming from God, then whatever God commands could be good, including roasting my cats and forcing my children to eat them or whatever it is that God makes me want to do as long as God says it. Genocide, which is a question we could bring in later on, uh, massacring whole groups of people. Or uh, God can be commanding something wonderfully and helpful, loving my neighbor, loving my wife, loving my community. These automatically become right merely because God says them. And you're arguing no, but at the same time, the other perspective comes in and says, then why not? So go ahead and help us uh, parse through that. Yeah. Yeah, I really find thinking about it a lot of fun. You know, and I, and I do think that we should try to feel the force of the objection before we immediately gravitate, you know, to the solution. Right. Yeah, because, because you know, I, I have a lot of students nowadays who will do this. They'll, they'll pull this sort of thing, and they'll say, yeah, uh, because, and, and, you know, maybe they've caught wind of the potential solutions out there and such, and they just jump straight to them. And uh, they'll say, well, this isn't a problem at all, because, you know, it's not about God's commands. It's about God's nature and God's good. So there you go. No, that's a- the problem, the, I, think, I think at the root, oh, there's a lot of truth there. However, I think the problem is that if you just immediately jump to the solution, that you, you, ha- you haven't worked the issue through. You haven't really struggled with the problem. 
you know? I may, I'm putting a screen up here of what I'm showing is just an outline of the dilemma itself. I think that's helpful to see that for people. Can you see that? Yeah, that's good. That's good. Either A or B. So go ahead and yeah. work through that with us. I, I got to come back to this issue of, of the good uh, eventually, by yeah, the way. Um, right. Because uh, morality might mean the good or it might mean the right. And sometimes there's an important distinction between the good and the right. And, and that, that's actually kind of important at, at a certain point, but not yet. So, so yeah, I wanted to emphasize the, the value of struggling with the question. Uh, and again, I, I see this oftentimes with my own students who are studying apologetics at, at the master's level, this unwillingness to be engaged. Um, and I think that that's really unfortunate. I, I, I think it's really unfortunate. And, um, and, I, and I think that part of what's contributing to the problem is that there are so many brilliant apologists out there that people can listen to, you know, from Paul Copan to William Lane Craig to Gary Habermas and so forth, that um, people just think that they can jump to where these folks are very easily. But Habermas spent 10 years in doubt, 10 years seriously struggling, you know, with questions about the historicity of the resurrection. William Lane Craig worked on two PhDs, you know, one in philosophy and one in theology. Um, these guys didn't just uh, weave out their little solution without effort. I mean, they spent years and years, you know, in the questions, with the questions, struggling with them, feeling their force. And, and I just think it's such a shame if we, if we lose our willingness, in fact, the, the joy of struggling with some of these questions um, I, I would rather people struggle a little bit than simply think, oh, there's no problem because, you know, here's the solution. Mm. Because if you say <clears throat> you, can, you can solve this by, because it's God's nature that matters, not God's commands, <clears throat> that doesn't help at all. <clears throat> Unless God's nature is of a particular kind. <clears throat> Suppose God's nature truly were evil or horrible. How does punting to God's nature help in the least? It, it, it really doesn't. So, um, yeah, I think people need to uh, slow down and be willing to, uh, to, to feel the force of the challenge. That's helpful. Okay. But, but, yeah, so uh, take, take the case of the binding of Isaac, right? So Abraham is told to sacrifice his only son, Isaac. And this is a perfect example where uh, if you don't struggle with this, you, you'll think that the challenge is much easier than it is, right? Because we could just sort of say in a casual or cavalier fashion, oh, well, you know, God didn't end up having Abraham sacrifice Isaac after all. Problem solved. <laughs> yeah, but the whole, the whole trip there, Abraham's thinking, I have to take out a knife and sacrifice Isaac, thinking you know, this is what God had told him to do. I mean, can you imagine how utterly heart-wrenching uh, that was? And, of course, it wasn't unheard of. Uh, gods, you know, so-called in that time and place, were thought to command child sacrifices on many occasions. And uh, Abraham was in the complicated, excruciating process of learning that um, God actually wasn't that way, Right. Uh, or, or, the, or the conquest narratives in the Old Testament, there are a number of challenges that arise concerning, concerning those. And so many people would suggest, 
look, this isn't just a problem for non-Christian theologies. It's a problem for Christian theology, too. The, the Bible contains some of these stories in which God does issue commands that we would be tempted to say are really bad or uh, evil or perhaps even irremediably evil. And, and then you can start to have those conversations. That very picture, that very painting is on the cover of your book, The Sacrifice of Isaac. Yeah, yeah good God. Let's, uh, let's a, uh, unpack that for us, because the struggle there is that God, the whole ultimate source of all goodness, is commanding something that seems to be malevolent, painful. It seems to be evil, something a devil would command. Yeah. So, so unpack that struggle for us and so walk us through it. How can we um, adequately address uh, this issue of Isaac on the floor and Abraham holding him and the struggle of a father trying to do the right thing? Um, of course, Kritikard wrote about this and other philosophers and theologians yeah. are struggling with this. So go ahead and help us uh, walk through this. Yeah, right. Now, yeah, now in Kierkegaard's case, of course, he thought that we could just sort of uh... Sorry, David, I'm, I'm not hearing you. I think you're muted. And um, although I appreciate his taking it seriously and feeling the force of it, um, I probably would push back a little bit on the, uh, the hermeneutical gap because there is a huge one. Right? We, we know more about God than Abraham did at that, at that stage. And uh, we know that he's not the kind of God who can do that sort of thing, or who would follow through with that sort of, that sort of thing. Uh, but again, Abraham didn't yet know. He didn't know how the story would end. He didn't know that God would provide another sacrifice and so forth. All he knew was that God had told him to do this, and um, and so he wanted to be faithful with what with what God had commanded him to do. But he also knew that God had given him uh, uh, promises about what would happen through Isaac, you know, with the descendants and such. And so somehow he believed, and this was very early on in you know re- revelational history, that if need be, God would raise Isaac from the dead. And, and, and still multiply his descendants. So it's just a remarkable thing. And, and, uh, and, and of course, Abraham is taken as sort of the paradigm of, of faith. But it's not faith, I think, in any kind of like fideistic uh, or blind sort of sense. It's really his principled faith. He knew enough about God to know that he could trust him, but he really didn't know how it was going to play out. And of course, we find ourselves in that situation all the time, Right that we don't exactly know how God's going to, you know, help us navigate a particular circumstance, but we have excellent reason to believe that we can trust him in whatever circumstance we find ourselves in. Well, in Abraham's case, he was willing to do it. um, But of course he didn't uh, ultimately have to, because God provided another way. But among the the many, you know, really interesting, um, features of this particular story is that it was a powerful precursor, wasn't it, to God the Father sending his son to his death and, uh, and really uh, allowed it to happen. In fact, you know, sent his son into the world to die for our sins because he loved us that much. Uh, and they, the father was willing to endure the loss of, of uh, Jesus. And, and Jesus, of course, went to the cross willingly. 
Um, and so, that, so that's a part of the sort of Christian theological significance of, of the whole Abraham story when we sort of look back at it now in, in retrospect. Um, but when it comes to the taking of life, you might say uh, that that is a bad thing whenever you have to take life. Uh, including in a, in a just war. It's still, in, in some real sense, a bad thing to take life. <clears throat> but presumably, if God created us um, and has our best, ultimate best interests at heart and so forth, um, he does have the authority to take life away if he so chooses. So if I were to talk about myself for a second, if he were to take me out right now, <laughs> um, it seems to me that he's, he's well within his rights to do so. I mean, how can anybody say, oh, God, you did this immoral thing? Now, again, right. I think that in some sense, the taking of any life, uh, even, even, you know, Hitler's or whoever's, uh, is, is always going to be in some sense bad. But I would distinguish between in some sense bad in the sense of, you know, like it, it's not optimal. It's not God's perfect plan or anything like that but maybe it's called for, maybe it's necessary in a broken, fallen world in which you have to resist evil or something. Uh, there's a d- distinction between in some sense bad and in every sense bad, or just utterly irremediably evil, like the idea that God could tell us to uh, torture children for the sheer fun of it, or something like that. If someone were to say, well, there you go, you know, God could even do something like that. I, I say, no, I don't think so. <laughs> What does it mean to say that God is good? What does it mean to say that God is essentially love? Uh, unless some things are ruled out, like God's ability to command us to torture children for the fun of it. What you want to say there, I mean, I wouldn't say that a, a friend of mine who is a pretty good guy would be capable of something like that. But I'm supposed to say that the God of all goodness could issue such an irremediably evil command as that. It vitiates our ascriptions of goodness to God uh, of any significance. If there are no constraints or parameters or strictures or limitations in place. Now, the limitations are not externally imposed on God. They are rather a function of his perfection, a function of his perfect love. But the Bible tells us as much when it says God can't sin or can't be tempted. God can't deny himself. It would be tantamount to denying himself if God were to issue certain sorts of commands that cross a certain line. So the idea is the command to, to uh, kill uh, Isaac, which again, he didn't even follow through on, was this side of that line, right? Because God has prerogatives with respect to life and death and such. Um, but other things would be on the other side of that line. And that's why I say, look, it means something when we affirm God's goodness. You can't say God is perfectly good and loving, and yet God can do just anything at all, morally speaking, because it, it, would, it would evacuate the, the attribution of goodness to God of any real significance. Let's, let me push back on that then. Go ahead and help us. Why should we assume or presume that God is good. Let's go ahead and define God uh, and point out that we're not just making some, or you're not just making some arbitrary, subjective um, theological point here. Uh, the very definition of God includes goodness. Unpack that for us. Why should I buy that? Why should I believe that? And why can't God be, like Stephen Law would argue in some of his work, God can be technically an evil or malevolent being. Why not? Why assume the goodness of God and the very nature of God. 
Yeah, right, right. Well, I think that uh, there are probably both a priori and a posteriori reasons to think that God is good. Um, so conceptually, right, we often are inclined to say, you use the word define, right? God's defined this one. So you could, you could think of like a, 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 a de dicto analysis of God is good, uh, meaning uh, it's necessarily the case that any being who inhabits the office of deity is good, such that if a being isn't good, it doesn't qualify as God, something like that. Okay. Now that's consistent with there being nobody inhabiting the, the office at all. It's like Santa Claus lives on the North Pole. <laughs> if you're not living at the North Pole, you're not Santa Claus. Also, which is true. Also, <laughs> Santa Claus doesn't exist. So we're not, we're not begging questions about God's existence at this point. We're just saying conceptually that's part of what, what it is that we have come to mean by God in the uh, sort of mature monotheistic tradition. This is probably uh, more related to the a priori than the a posteriori at this point. Uh, you know, the Anselmian notion of God as the possessor of all of the great making perfections. So, so this is the idea that God has all the properties that are better to have than not to have and has them to the maximally uh, possible degree. So he has as much power as is consistent with having as much goodness and love as is consistent with having as much you know, knowledge and so forth and all these things. So, um, so it might not be the case that God could do everything, right? Like make a square circle, but he can, he can do everything that makes sense to do and everything that's consistent with his nature with respect to his omnibenevolence, the idea is God is essentially loving, right? So this is not just de dicto, this is de re, saying of God himself, he possesses this property of being essentially loving. So this is just, at this point, this is not apologetics, this is just philosophical theology, where you're sort of laying out what it is that we mean by God, so that if you say God doesn't exist, and I say God does exist, we're actually talking about the same being, we're not just sort of talking past each other. But then, of course, in addition to the a priori, or the, the kinds of things that we can get sort of uh, based, on, uh, based on the uh, deliverances of reason alone, you also have the a posteriori, or the more experiential kinds of evidence for God's goodness. So as a Christian, I would say that um, we have, the, you know, let's say, the biblical revelation of the nature of God. Um, and we know that God is loving, that God is good because uh, God has revealed these things to us. And in fact, in a very fine-grained sort of way with like, say, the, uh, the Trinitarian theology that we have, we come to discover what it means to say that God is love, that he's essentially loving, that actually in the relationships between the members of the Trinity, you know, you have these loving relationships that have always obtained uh, and that always will, that this is the foundation sort of bedrock of, of reality that ultimate, ultimate reality is good. Ultimate reality is personal and relational and, and loving, and perfectly loving, perfectly good. So when we wrote Good God, we wanted to deal with that head on, you know. We, we called it Good God because we wanted to capture that notion because there's a lot of challenges nowadays, you know, to this idea that God is perfectly good and loving. And we wanted to say, no, we have really we consider ourselves to have really principal reasons to believe that God is this way, um, both experiential reasons and, and more theoretical reasons, and uh, that we shouldn't be embarrassed about it, that we can face this head on. And we can talk about 
the conquest narratives, and we can talk about the binding of Isaac, but we can, of course, also talk about, you know, Jesus coming and uh, dying at the cross for our sins and so forth, which is, I think, where you get the clearest picture uh, of, the, of the goodness and the, and the love uh, of God, you know. Some of these other passages, I mean, obfuscate uh, God's goodness a little bit. You have to look harder to see it, right? But in the crystal clear picture of the cross, you can see God's love, um, you know, very, very, uh, very well. Um, there are any analogies that you can help um, you know, beginning students to see that clearly enough? For example, Jonathan Edwards refers to God being like a light. And the more he shines into the universe by inevitably when he creates other beings, their shadows are going to be cast. <laughs> Those shadows are inevitable when God automatically mm-hmm. creates anything other than himself, which is by definition un- not perfect. Um, is there, that's an analogy to help people see that when light emulates from the, the, the source of goodness, anything else that's around it, by default, cannot be perfect. And it would have to have that darkness or a shadow around it. And of course, the more it blocks the light, the more you have cold, the more you have bitterness, the more you have rage, the more you have what's called, we call evil. Yeah. That was just an analogy Edwards used. Um, I, like, I like that analogy. And, and you know, because the, the world is also fallen and, and corrupt and sinful and in need of redemption, that also, I think, introduces some, some painful aspects of this world because probably pain and suffering um, have to be endured as, the, as this world gets set aright, as it gets fixed and rectified. Um, and sometimes, you know, we do have to, say, stand up against bullies or stand up against, um, e- you know, evil you know, behaviors in this world. Right. And that, that might get messy. That might get, uh, you might get your hands dirty a little bit in, in doing that. And you might think, well, this is far from a perfect world. This is far from the world that a perfect God would, would create. And, and, of course, in a real sense, it is because it's, it's a fallen world. But that's no surprise to Christian theology, of course, right? Because Christian theology is all about the, uh, the creation of this world and then how it fell and how God is in the process of redeeming it and how ultimately the world will be as it ought to be, but we're not there yet. Why? Why should I believe that? I mean, your whole work on moral apologetics, uh, and you've started a wonderful center, which I would like to talk about a little bit later. Uh, at Houston uh, on the question of moral apologetics. Why do you, on a personal level, believe that God is good when you see horrendous evil around us, whether they be hitting innocent Christians in Iraq, Syria, or the abuse of children, and now abuse is epidemic, it's growing uh, as a pandemic continues to grow. Yeah, well, Immanuel Kant and David Hume, um, as we look back historically, you know, they, they took two different sides to this issue when they would look at the evil in this world. You know, Hume was uh, pretty convinced that it counted as decisive evidence against the existence of, say, an Anselmian God, a God of all perfections. Right. And you can understand the tension that, that people feel when they see these things because they think, well, you know, I would stop that if I could. Why wouldn't God? And, right. and so forth. Of course, of course. If God were to wipe out all the evil in the world, I think we have to all realize that that pretty much means all of us would go. <laughs> you know, it's, yeah. it's easy to think, you know, why doesn't God fix all this evil without realizing, you know, a lot of that evil is within my own heart. And uh, yeah, so setting that issue aside, Kant had a different kind of view where um, it's not that he looked at the evil and said, oh, there you go. That makes me think a perfectly good and loving God exists. <laughs> my, my evidence for it is evil. 
there's some sense in which you might eventually make that case, but I don't make that case first. The, 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 the biggest difference between Kant and Hume on this score is that Kant was a firm believer when he looked inward uh, of the existence of a binding, prescriptive, authoritative, moral law. And remember how he talked about how nothing so stirs the heart and the beautiful starry heavens above and the moral law within, right? So he was this firm believer that there was such a thing as this. And um, if a moral law, a moral law giver, and so forth. And so this imbued him with confidence in the face of the evils that you'd encounter in this world, that they won't have the final uh, say. A story, by the way, here in this connection that I really love, uh, they should make a screenplay out of it, it seems to me, is uh, William Sorley. Okay, so William Sorley, he did the Gifford Lectures way back when, mm-hmm. and uh, his son Charles was one of the World War I war poets, uh, okay. his son Charles. So anyway, William Sorley, um, brilliant uh, thinker, uh, I forget, whether he was at Cambridge or Oxford or something, but anyway, gave the Gifford Lectures back during World War I on the moral argument, his version of the moral argument. And uh, he would send chapters of this thing to Charles, who was fighting in the war at the time. Mm. And, um, and he was talking about, you know, the, the moral law and, and God is the good and so forth and so on. And wonderful, brilliant work. Um, and, and, and then one day he, he received news that his son Charles had died in the war. He had gotten mm. shot and he was killed. And he and his wife were, were devastated. And he was still in the throes of writing out the Gifford lectures on the moral argument, you know, an argument for the existence and the goodness of God. And his son, Charles, had just died. And he just got the news. And he didn't paper it over, you can imagine. Um, but he didn't fundamentally change his mind either. He retained his conviction that evil, such as this, doesn't have the final word. But he realized that if he wanted to talk about the moral argument, he would have to talk about the evils that we encounter in this world, because that's part of the moral evidence too. This is, I, I think, in all honesty, Keldean, why some people are skeptical of the moral argument, because the basic logical structure is, let's look at the moral evidence of this world, and it points toward God. But, but if, you, if you put your focus on the evil of this world, you can understand why some people would say, I think the evidence points against the existence of God. But that's not a stupid idea. But our very sense, I mean, one of, there's lots of things to say about this, and I don't mean to dispense with it too quickly at all, but, but let me just say one or two things real quick. Our, our very sense that the world is not as it ought to be, right? Where does that come from? I mean, on a naturalistic understanding of things, the world is pretty much exactly what it ought to be, right? How could it be different? Everything is just sort of determined, you know, to happen just as it does and so on. Our very sense that, yeah, but there's something broken here, right? Makes great sense on Christianity, which, which tells that very story of what went wrong and what God is doing to fix it. Um, whereas on a naturalistic understanding of things, uh, the world is as it should be. And so that actually takes this whole set of convictions that we have about how broken this world is and how, how evil it is at, at times uh, how how far it is from what it ought to be, and turns it on its head and actually s- suggests that Kant was right, um, that if you believe in this kind of binding prescriptive moral truth, moral law, 
then you can make sense of this anomaly as this kind of temporary brokenness that's in the process of being fixed that doesn't have the final word instead of attributing to the evil, you know, the last word on this, on this matter, which would just make all of our hopes and dreams for a better world um, basically be seen for what they are, which is an elaborate illusion. It's just a pipe dream. Um, it's Pollyannish. There's nothing to ground it. On, on Christianity, though, there really is, and we can retain hope for the ultimate uh, victory of good over evil. Fascinating. Um, you bring that out. Now, in all the major religions of the world, in all the epochs and mythologies, evil seems to win, although there are a few um, tragedies here and there where you have seems to be evil having the upper hand, so to speak, um, such as the anti-hero or uh, the, the Hades having um, dominion over Zeus, etc. But that's, that's very rare, and those are more common in the um, um, esoteric literature. But the general literature and mythology and theology across the world is a hero is good and ends up getting his just desserts and evil does ultimately get punished. Why Christianity? Why Christ? Because you mentioned that, because I just mentioned that theme is in all the major religions of the world. Why specifically do you embrace this as a theistic framework in the cross? Yeah. Most of my work hasn't, uh, hasn't focused as much on Christianity as, as it has on uh, theism. But uh, what I've said for years is that I think that uh, there's a lot of tremendously uh, cutting-edge work to be done in extending uh, moral apologetics all the way to Christianity. Um, I could say a few things, though. You know, so if you believe in something like a God of all goodness, an omnibenevolent God, and then you were to imagine, you know, well, what would such a being look like if he became a human being? It makes a great deal of sense to me that it would be something like Jesus, right? <laughs> I mean, a, a being uh, motivated, animated by, by love and, and, and gift and sacrifice and self-sacrifice. Um, Christianity just makes a lot of sense to me from a, from a number of angles. It makes sense of a whole panoply of moral categories, uh, you know, regret, guilt, the need for forgiveness, the need for transformation. Uh, a Christian picture of God, like I say, provides, I think, a fine-grained account of God's omnibenevolence with the paraphoretic nature of the Trinitarian relationship. Um, you know, the historicity of the resurrection, of course, gives me reason to believe that Christianity is, is, is true. Um, so it's a, it's a cumulative case that I would make if I were to write a, a book along those sorts of lines. But I think that you can actually do a cumulative case moral argument, you know, if you were to just focus on this one aspect of, of morality, of goodness and rightness and, and virtue and whatnot. Christianity makes tremendously good, good sense uh, of a whole range uh, of moral realities. And so, so you can definitely do, do that. This is work that I'm hoping to be able to do more, more of. Sort of logically, you kind of start with theism and then kind of move, you know, more and more toward, uh, toward Christianity. But Anselm himself, of course, didn't just believe in um, the, the God of the perfections. He, he was also a, a devout Christian. So he also believed in Christianity. So he believed in both, uh, you know, general revelation and special revelation. Um, so yeah, um, all all of those are uh, all of those are potential reasons one might deduce. Now, on this issue of there being a reckoning, right. you know, for wrongdoing and such, what uh, something that I found that was really neat 
Uh, and it, it, it happened um, just kind of um, coincidentally. I happened to read Act 17 around the same time that I was reading Plato's Apology. And I found there to be all of these conspicuous parallels between Paul and, and Socrates. And among them, uh, I mean, they were both in Athens, they were both being kind of countercultural, they were both denying the existence of a number of these gods that were believed in. Um, they both saw themselves as on something of a divine mission. Um, and interestingly enough, they both affirmed that, that there was a coming reckoning, that they both affirmed that there was a coming reckoning. Now, in Paul's case, it makes perfect sense, right? Steep as he was in the Judaic tradition. But what about Socrates? I mean, he was in ancient Greece. He only had general revelation, and yet he somehow thought that it was uh, intuitively obvious that we would be called to account for the lives that we lived and this sort of thing. So okay, you what passage find... are you referring to in the, in the, in the Socratic dialogues? Yeah, it, it, it's in the Apology. Okay. It's in the Apology. And so it's, it's not very long. So if you, if you read it, you, you will find, I don't remember the exact line, but uh, you'll find him, him talk about this, this, this coming reckoning. And I thought, well, this is so interesting. Both Paul and Socrates are affirming this. And, and that maybe actually got me thinking that maybe knowledge of a coming reckoning isn't just a function of special revelation, but of uh, general revelation, maybe. Um, by the way, one last note on that. There was then one salient distinction between the two. Mm. And it was that <laughs> Paul said, you know, in, you know, in times past, God has been patient and so forth. You know, you were ignorant and he knew it and he, he gave you space and room for that. <laughs> and, and he was in Athens. And, and, and those people, they had to have connected reference to ignorance to Socrates because Socrates always went around saying, hey, man, I don't know the answers to these questions. I'm ignorant. You're the one who's claiming to know these answers. I don't know. <laughs> I guess I do know more than you because at least I'm ignorant and know it. You're right, ignorant. Right. You don't know it. <laughs> Okay. Now, Paul said at that, this point, though, right, when he came along, that the hour of ignorance is over mm. because something decisive has happened, and that's that Jesus was raised from the dead. And, uh, and that, the significance of that could not have been lost, it seems to me, on the people of Athens, mm. um, you know, with, with his, his, with his uh, constant appeals to ignorance paul was like yeah that's true in the past you were and now your excuses are are over because something so decisive as the resurrection anastasis has happened they thought it was a new god it was it was a whole new concept to them right right interesting yeah well that that is uh, that is uh, astute of you all right let's go ahead and now wrap this up i want to honor your time the um the belief that there is a good god is grounded then in the incarnation of Christ and provided evidence for in his resurrection from the dead. Uh, and you've written on that as well, as well as some moderates some debates on it as well. And so if you were to give like an analogy or a story or some kind of um, metaphor to help people understand where you're coming from, is there anything that comes to mind as we wrap up the discussion on the good God? Because I do want to give you a chance to talk about the moral apologetic center that, you, that you're heading right now in, in Texas. Well, I, I do think that I do think that um, what we have to take seriously as apologists 
is not just the matter of God's existence, but God's goodness, because frankly, even Satan believes that God exists. It's no, it's no mean feat to say, oh, uh, I believe that God exists. <laughs> I also think it's helpful when we do apologetics that we remember that the point of it is evangelism. It's, it's really to win these people and not just the argument. I know that sounds a little cliche, but I think it's so true. Um, you know, simply making people squirm and backing them into a corner and all this is really not the point. It's to demonstrate the, the, the love of God and to make that winsome and attractive for them. David Horner, he's out of Biola, a wonderful guy, he, he makes some really compelling points that in order for people to, to really apprehend the goodness of God, they have to have, most typically at least, requisite experience of goodness. Um, use a different example. Suppose you were to give a, an argument from beauty, but uh, to someone who has never really experienced a beauty, beautiful sunsets or beautiful mountain ranges. Right. They're really not going to, it's not going to have much purchase for them, is it? No. Now you can do a mathematical proof and show someone how to get to the truth of a particular conclusion with just, just these, you know, kind of bland discursive inferences. That's one thing. But if you talk about an argument from beauty or an argument from goodness, now the idea is people need a certain amount of experience of these things in order for the arguments to really grab hold and have an impact on them. Well, what we have as Christians is the opportunity to give people an experience of goodness. So if you take someone like, say, say Fred Rogers, Mr. Rogers, yeah. right? The reason why you can't he but hear his name and smile is because he was, he was such a wonderful man and he was so kind, he was so gentle and so forth. What a, what a great example of a kind of incarnational apologetic, right? And, and we all don't have exactly his personality clearly enough, but we can all aspire to be, you know, the best people that God wants us to be, people of love and gentleness, people of kindness, Give people an experience of goodness. You don't have to get into all the fancy metaphysics if you don't want to, or all the fancy epistemology. You don't have to be steeped, um, you know, in philosophy or earn a PhD before you can use the resources of the moral argument in your personal evangelism. Love people, be kind, uh, reach out, uh, come alongside them in their suffering and, and mourn with them when they mourn and rejoice with them when they rejoice, which, by the way, is sometimes even harder than mourning with them when they mourn. But uh, incarnate what goodness looks like so that when they have an opportunity to come to believe in a, in a holy, essentially loving God and Father, um, it'll, it'll have purchase. It will have an impact. They'll be more inclined to, to believe it. In my own life, I have come to see that the question of God's existence, uh, though interesting, is really quite penultimate. Who God is is just as, if not more important than whether God exists. Yes, it's important that we have arguments to show that God exists, but if you can't um, you know, give people some compelling reasons to believe that God is also actually good, why would they even care? You know, So what, that God exists, right? But if you can, uh, through stories, through narratives, through loving relationships, and through argument, uh, help people see the very goodness of God and the love of God, then I think they'll be much more inclined to uh, to respond with openness. Mm, that's powerful. Yeah, that goes back to wasn't it? What Hume that said: we um, the, the heart ends up 
uh, controlling and bringing the mind along to justify what it wants. <laughs> and if the heart is going geared toward the beauty of God, then we can bring our mind along to say, okay. I think that's right. I think that's right. And, and, and I say that as a philosopher, I mean, I don't think, I don't think that this uh, task of apologetics and certainly not moral apologetics is all done merely, merely with the mind. Right. There's a lot of heart stuff, relational stuff, aesthetic stuff that's going on here. And we, we have to realize that. Yeah. Hey, can I fill in one little gap from before? I had said I was going to come back to that issue of the good and the right. Yeah, of course. So I do. I am drawn to something like a divine command theory, but I'm not a divine command theorist with respect to the good. Okay. I do see God's goodness as essentially connected to his perfect nature, but I see rightness in the sense of moral obligations as connected to his command. So I tend to be a divine command theorist with respect to moral obligations. That said, one more point, you can be a moral, apologi- a moral apologist and, and a natural lawyer or a Thomist or a divine will theorist or a divine command theorist we don't, in other words, have to agree on normative ethics for us to kind of get together as Christian apologists and moral apologists and say, hey, the moral argument has tremendous potential to help reach people. Um, we don't have to first settle all of these specifics uh, on normative ethics. You know, those are tricky questions. And we can, we can have latitude to disagree on some of that. As long as we can all agree that morality essentially depends on God, then the resources of moral apologetics can be brought to bear effectively in our evangelism. Would you, um, if I may ground what you're saying in a practical perspective, um, in 1963, um, Martin Luther King, 68, excuse me, uh, penned the letter from Birmingham prison where he grounded the the, the, the discrimination and racism being immoral in the very foundation of the nature of God, um, creating us in a sense of um, with dignity and respect and to violate the very essence of being human by crushing your other is itself a violation of that Imago Dei in each of us. Can you actually ground racism as being immoral on a large, grand, systemic, ontological sense without reference to the foundational sense of God? Well, I think that you can come up with some stories and there are stories that are based on aspects and features of the world and of human beings that uh, aren't wrong. So I think that you can go down that path to some degree, uh, but I think that you can go considerably beyond that point by bringing in the resources of, of theism, our having been made in God's image uh, for reasons and purposes and our having been conferred the dignity and, and intrinsic value that we have in virtue of that. Uh, so we have all the resources, any, anything that anybody would want to come up with based on secular ethics, we have access to all of that too, and more, <laughs> you see? So this is why I tend to gravitate more toward a best explanation approach as opposed to, this is the only explanation, you know, okay, which yeah. I think is a little yeah. off-putting. Yeah, that's anyway. more nuance. It's very philosophical of you. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I'm uh, going to wrap this interview up. So tell us about the uh, Center for Moral Apologetics. Oh, man. We're so excited about it. Uh, Dr. Robert Sloan at Houston Baptist invited me and my wife to come here and to teach. And so over the summer, we moved to Houston Baptist, and we have begun the Center for Moral Apologetics. So I get the chance to direct that. And in time, we hope to offer scholarships to uh, students and uh, conferences and workshops and lectureships and so forth. We really want to make HBU the sort of epicenter for studying the moral argument Uh, giving people a chance to really sink into this argument and to live with the argument. 
not just for you know a few weeks or a few a few months, but to form a community where all of us together can be helping each other sharpen and refine these tools and skills and to to to, to really apprehend the these resources at a deep level. So this is the the goal. This is the dream uh, for the Center of Moral Apologetics at uh, Houston Baptist University and. We'll be doing some fundraising and whatnot to help students who um, want to study with us and aren't uh, otherwise uh, able to, you know, to do it uh, for financial reasons. Um, but we're hoping that more and more people can uh, catch the vision of what a Center for Moral Apologetics can uh, accomplish. You know, it's interesting to me that William Lane Craig, when asked which argument he finds to be the most persuasive when he goes to college campuses and has debates, he says the moral argument. And Al Plantinga, probably the greatest living Christian philosopher, when asked which argument from natural theology he thinks is the best, says the moral argument. Um, I don't think that's a, that's a coincidence. And we've really seen a resurgence of interest in the moral argument in the, in the last decade. And I think the sky's the limit. Uh, some of the best uh, work and most cutting edge work is, is yet to come. So we want to train, prepare, and equip and empower people from you know, high schoolers, college students, grad students, professionals, professional philosophers um, to master these resources and really use them powerfully and effectively in their work and their ministry. Wonderful. Well, well may God bless you. May he um, expand your reach and the work of your hands and your mind, you, both you and your wife and, and, the, and your journey ahead. Well, thanks, Caldean. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for being with me. I really appreciate it, David. Thank you. Uh, let's wrap it up. Um, any final work, um, any final words that you want to leave with us or any uh, work that you're currently working on, any new books, articles? Yeah, Jerry Walls and I just got a contract with uh, Oxford University Press to write the fourth book in our tetralogy. Fourth. So this is, the, uh, this is the book that's going to defend moral realism. So really it's the first book in the tetralogy, but we're writing it last. <laughs> but uh, to help answer the nihilists and the subjectivists and the relativists and the uh, skeptics about morality. Yeah, they don't stop. Um, <laughs> the need, need for that sort of thing. <laughs> oh, wonderful. All right, I'll look forward to that at Oxford. It's great to continue to publish your work uh, at Oxford. It's one of the you know, best presses in the world. So, Well, God bless you, brother. You as well. All right. Take care.